You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Susan Hansen loves Election Day in Turkey. The amazing thing about Turkish Election Day is that it's really like a jubilee. People love to vote here. Susie lives in and reports from Istanbul. I spoke with her Monday morning, the day after Turks went to the polls. The turnout was a stunning 92%. Yeah, it was incredible. And the the other thing that's great is that everybody votes at the local school in their neighborhood. And anyone can go and not only watch the voting, like a foreign journalist like me, but you can also watch the votes be counted in the classrooms. People are laughing and enjoying the experience. What I saw was actually a kind of beautiful thing. All 600 members of parliament were on the ballot this weekend. But this election was mostly seen as a referendum on one man, Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. He's been in power one way or another for two decades. It wasn't clear this time what was going to happen. Turkey is experiencing a massive economic crisis. All you hear about from people is how much they are suffering. Tonight, votes are being counted in the most pivotal elections in Turkey's 100-year history. The outcome... Susie watched results come in from a neighborhood that's historically been a stronghold for Erdogan. But while she'd hoped for some kind of decisive result... She didn't get it. While results are not official, neither candidate seems to have reached the 50% threshold required to win the presidency outright. But both express Now, a runoff looms in just a couple of weeks. Susie knows that in a situation like this one, with limited time and lots of uncertainty, to some, Erdogan is going to feel familiar, safe. You know, you have a situation here where this man has been in power since 2003. He controls all of the media. He controls all of the state institutions. Everybody here knows he's going to most likely win that runoff. So are you right now surprised or more just anticipating what might happen next? I think we're all surprised, but I I, I would have to issue some caveats about that. People felt as if this could be a really stunning election defeat of Erdogan, and that's not what happened. Today on the show, how Recep Tayyip Erdogan became a seemingly unstoppable force. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. 
When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Recep Tayyip Erdogan has been president or prime minister of Turkey since 2003, which is a long time. So I'm wondering if we can start out by explaining who he is and how he amassed so much power in the first place. Like He was mayor of Istanbul in the 90s, right? What kind of leader was he then? Well, when Erdogan became mayor, it was also a shock. In Turkey, most of the political parties towed a conservative but centrist and secular line. And very religious Muslims were usually shut out. Now, that doesn't mean that some of the political parties were not conservative, that people did not pray, but explicitly Islamist parties did not usually gain a lot of power. And Erdogan, who grew up in a poor neighborhood to religious parents, they were migrants from the Black Sea. Erdogan joined these political parties. They changed over the years, but they were basically the Islamist parties. And he came up through these political networks these social networks that he had been forming over the decades. And so from the bottom up, like a community organizer, he started amassing power and he empowered even religious women in these neighborhoods and they huh. came out for him, right? And so then he becomes mayor in 1994. And the thing is, you know, the Islamists had been threatened by military coups, by the secular state for a decent amount of time at that point. What he did was he said, okay, I have this huge disadvantage, but I'm going to work really hard. And he did. He cleaned up the city. He improved the social services. He was actually making things better in terms of life, you know, actual real life. And a lot of the other political parties, the ones that had been in power and grown a little bit lazy, they hadn't been providing for the poor. They hadn't been improving people's lives. And Erdogan got to work. And many people started to believe, OK, you know, this guy, you know, he, he's doing something for us, even people who might not vote for him. But they could recognize that he was doing a good job. The largely secular Turkish state was still suspicious of Erdogan, though. After he gave a fiery speech, some claimed incited hate, he got sent to jail. It was part of an anti-Islamist crackdown all over the country. But then there was an earthquake. This was back in 1999. I mean, every when the earthquake happened in February, everyone who knows Turkey woke up thinking about the 1999 earthquake and the fact that huh. that had helped bring Erdogan to power. And now it was possible that an earthquake would bring him out of power because in 1999, there was a massive earthquake. It was in the Marmara region, which is where Istanbul is, and 17,000 people died. And it had the effect, because it was such a proof of failure that the, the country had not prepared its buildings for earthquakes, that apartments were not ready for an earthquake, which they should have been doing. It discredited a lot of political parties at the time. They were seen as a failure. And soon after that, there was a massive financial crisis, which definitely was because of the corruption in political parties and the mismanagement of the economy. And so all of a sudden, Erdogan gets out of jail. And these two things are happening. And he comes back with a new political strategy. And that strategy is to form a political party that is not Islamist. 
It's pro-EU, it's pro-democracy, it's pro-human rights, it's kind of pro-Western, it's pro-business, this being the most important thing. And people started getting excited. And they they really advertised themselves as clean. We're going to clean up the country. We're going to get rid of the mafias and the and the corruption. And we're going to change this country for the better. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to note how popular Erdogan initially was with the West. And I think you kind of laid out some of the reasons right there, which is he's very pro-business. He sounds like a Western leader when you're talking about making things more open economically like that. Yeah. I mean, this is the early 2000s. This is when it was in when privatization, when neoliberal policies were in vogue. And a country like Turkey was seen as one that was poor and and corrupt and, you know, just needed to get with the the global marketplace. And so Erdogan pledged to privatize the state companies, privatize the water company, privatize the electric company, and to make Turkey friendlier to Western markets. How did that work out for the people of Turkey, all this rapid privatization? In the beginning, he was improving the economy. He was improving people's lives. He was lifting people out of poverty. All of this money was flowing into Turkey as a great investment place, right? We saw museums going up and buildings being renovated. And so there were a lot of improvements. But in the background, and I think this is the key thing that is the everyone is revising their, their earlier takes on Turkey, the corruption was already starting, and particularly in the construction industry. Wasn't that exactly what Erdogan said he was going to clean up? Yes. Yes. But a leader like Erdogan, who knew he was under threat from the secular state who hated him, needed to amass his own business, wealthy business class. He needed friends fast. He needed friends fast. Exactly. And um, he did this primarily through privatization bids by giving all of these state contracts to his own businessmen and through building tons of apartment buildings. And he gave a lot of that development also to his own cronies. If the first 10 years of Erdogan's rule were about making Turkey into a neoliberal dream, the next 10 were about consolidating power by any means necessary. In 2013, protests from outside of Erdogan's party and dissent from within caused him to crack down on any whiff of opposition. And just three years after that, Erdogan put down a military coup. Susie was living in Turkey during that time. She says it was terrifying. They would release these announcements on the official gazette of the government on the internet at midnight. And it would just be lists of people who were being purged from their jobs, whether in the state or at universities. I mean, they really started cracking down hard on universities. And, you know, you just never had any idea what was going to happen to anyone any any day. The repression was really at a new level. What do you attribute Erdogan's longevity to, given all of this, that clearly he threatened the population, he expelled people who disagreed with him? Why has he lasted as long as he has? Erdogan managed to create this wealthy business class that was profiting so much off of his rule. He was also able to take those kickbacks and those bribes and create this incredible party machinery. And he was able to give jobs to the poor and distribute money through these religious charity networks. So what you have then is that you have such a stable of voters 
of devoted voters. It's not just about the ideology. It's not just about religion or because they saw Erdogan as a hero, although he is a charismatic hero. I think we have to keep in mind they were benefiting greatly financially from this man's power. And so at that point, repression of the people who do not benefit from this power and who are opposing him becomes somewhat easy because the people who are benefiting, I mean, I don't want to say what's in their hearts, but it says if they didn't mind. And so I think that as he also started facing threats from within and threats from without, he became more and more paranoid. I don't think that we can underestimate the role of paranoia for a man like him because he was never supposed to become this powerful in this country. A man like him never had that chance. He was he was kind of this trailblazer and he I think he always feared that he was going to be thrown out. There had always been this residual sympathy for Erdogan because he was such an underdog. And I think the West was sympathetic to him for a very long time. But at this point, the state of this country is his creation. And what happened during the earthquake, what has happened with this economy and many other things are because of Erdogan's, I would say, to a certain degree, vengefulness and cruelty. After the break, how February's earthquakes made Erdogan even more vulnerable. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. If there was ever a time Erdogan would lose power, Susie says, it would be now. Turkey has been dealing with crisis after crisis. Earlier this year, the country suffered two massive earthquakes, one after another. Tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people died. And Erdogan's government fumbled the response badly. Well, I think that the first thing is they were very disorganized. I mean, they did not deploy the Turkish military. That would have been the most capable organization that could have immediately deployed people to to these places and were trained in search and rescue. They failed to coordinate search and rescue within their own state organizations and with foreign rescue teams that were flying in at the drop of a hat. In some parts of the country, people were left alone for 48 hours. And in an earthquake, you have to get there immediately. But Erdogan had centralized power around his own office which means other offices could not work independently. They were waiting for a word from the president's office first. What he saw happen and what his office saw happen is anger and fury and desperation on Twitter. I mean, I can't look at the tweets from that time now, but I had to for my story. 
without almost having a PTSD reaction because it's so awful. I mean, it was all tweets from people either in the rubble or outside of the rubble who were saying like, where is the state? My whole family is under the rubble. It's a mother and her three kids and this and that, and they're inside and they're screaming and nobody can get to them. It was so, so awful what these people went through and it's snowing in the North and it's raining in the South. And Erdogan realized what a disaster this was. And he immediately gave this really angry speech where he said, those of you who are spreading lies on social media, we're going to write down your names and we will take care of you later. Bu tarihi felaketin üstesinden gelmeye çalışırken yalan haberler ve çarpıtmalarla... And then they shut down Twitter for, I think, 12 hours, if I'm not mistaken. Do you think Erdogan now recognizes any part of the government response to the earthquake was a misstep? They issued some apologies, but honestly, they were awful in those first weeks. They were defiant. They didn't look very sympathetic. They were immediately releasing these crazy propaganda videos of bulldozers, basically implying like they're going to rebuild. I mean, people were still under the rubble. No, I. no one resigned. You know, I mean, some of their own people suffered, obviously, but I didn't see sympathy. On top of the earthquake... Erdogan's also been wrestling with crushing inflation and an economic nosedive. And Susie says, everyone's talking about it. Every single young man I spoke to, whether in a taxi or, you know, in a shop or people who are lower class, middle class, was all of them were talking about how they can't survive financially. And I really mean that when I say that. I'm not talking about like, oh, things are bad. I mean, they can't afford to get married. They can't afford to buy meat. Um, I, I heard so many men talking about wanting to get on a plane, like save all their money for a flight to Mexico and then go across the American border. You don't hear Turks talk like this. These are the exact circumstances that brought Erdogan to power, like a financial crisis and an earthquake. Absolutely. But here's the difference. The opposition parties don't necessarily have the track record of improving an economic situation and and also improving people's lives. And so you still have a kind of habit of people thinking, well, Erdogan fixed this place once. It's probably only him who can do it again. Erdogan's opposition has made a real effort to reach the Turkish people and change their minds. The president's main political rival is an economist named Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu. During the campaign, he would tweet out these videos of himself at a kitchen table complaining about the high cost of onions, a staple of the Turkish diet. Geçen seçimde ustalık devri diye sattıkları şey ülkemizi her alanda çöküşe sürükledi. In the end, six opposition parties all threw their weight behind him. I mean, that doesn't happen. And also the Kurds were mostly behind that collection of parties, and many of them are conservative and are right-wing nationalists. But I think, uh, I think that they couldn't necessarily maybe coalesce around the the opposition candidate, Kamal Kılıçdaroğlu, who hasn't really been as successful in elections in the past and has seen as some people as a weak leader and who is also a member of a Muslim minority sect. The opposition, they had been doing pretty well these last weeks, but last night they, they really didn't get ahead of things and show strength. And so people are feeling pretty demoralized about them. Of course, you know, we're still in the mists of this. We're still processing it. So who knows what will happen? But I don't hear a lot of very optimistic people. You seem pretty certain that Erdogan's going to win this runoff. Can you explain why? 
Well, first of all, because that's what all of the Turkish people are saying. Um, and I always defer to them. But I would say the reason is, first of all, you know, he did do better than I mean, he lost votes, but he he and his party did better than people expected. Because a lot of voters who might have been undecided or people who voted for the third party candidate might just look at the situation right now and say, look, Erdogan, his party maintained the power in the parliament. You know, that in and of itself is a sign that really power is behind him. The wind is at his back. And because I think there is a part of people when it comes down to Erdogan and Kılıç Daroğlu, they're going to say to themselves, well, we don't actually know how this coalition is going to govern. We do know these things about this man. Yeah, maybe he's made some mistakes, as they say, but probably only he, both domestically and on the world stage, is strong enough to fix it. Yeah. And my understanding is that a small but significant percentage of the electorate cast their ballot for another person who ran who's, who's actually more conservative than Erdogan. And that might influence what happens next, too. Those people wouldn't be voters who would necessarily go with someone who is a more liberal candidate. Well, what they are is they are right wing nationalists. It's very anti-Kurdish. It has mafia connections. That's the party that this man, Sinan Oğan, comes from. And he uses the most virulent anti-Syrian rhetoric. I mean, the, his demand is that all refugees are sent away. Um, he's also talking very tough about the Kurds. I, I think it's unclear right now if he's really the kingmaker. I, I always kind of think that the only kingmaker is the king. But it's it's some people are speculating, OK, well, he won five percent of the vote. Where are those votes going to go? Will he signal to his voters in one direction or another? But I think most of us assume they're going to go to Erdogan right now. I feel like Erdogan is like a cat. Like he's got nine lives. Like <laughs> there's been a coup attempt. You know, he's been jailed. International community not like thrilled with him right now because he's making moves at NATO, trying to get concessions for stuff like, you know, letting Finland in. I can see why it's hard for you to think anything's going to change with the upcoming runoff. I mean, look, Erdogan, what he has managed to do on the international stage is is pretty fascinating. He's both on the side of Ukraine. He's on the side of Russia. He plays this two-face with Russia. But frankly, every country in this region plays a two-face. You know, the people who aren't used to that are the Americans who are kind of mm-hmm. like, you're either with us or you're against us. But at the same time, Turkey is a NATO country. Like the Americans need him to a certain degree. The Russians need Turkey. Everybody needs him a little bit. Some of the Gulf countries. I mean, that's where a lot of his money is coming from. Um, He's the terrible person they know. So in the next two weeks with this runoff looming, what are the stories you want to tell? Like, where are you going to be focusing as a journalist? Honestly, I don't know right now because I've been covering this country for 15 years. I'm working on a book about it. We have a financial crisis. We had a devastating, devastating earthquake. We've had years of repression and he's still coming out on top. And so I think that more work is probably needed to be done, as it always was, in the communities who actually vote for him and who actually still love him. And also the ones who claim that they're not voting for him, but actually are. You know, I think that to some degree, what I think has been misunderstood is the extent of how much his voters favor him, but also maybe the extent to which Turkish voters are white right wing. I don't know the answer to that. It's just people got hopeful, that's all. Do you think they're still hopeful? Not today. 
Susie, I'm really grateful for your time and for your reporting. This has been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Susie Hansen has written about Turkey for the last 15 years in The New York Times and The New Yorker. Her memoir is called Notes on a Foreign Country. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We got a ton of support on this episode from Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you tomorrow.